Well, good morning. It is good to have you here today, and I want to tell you, if you were here last week, I feel a lot better, uh, and maybe you can hear me a lot better. Well, yeah, okay. There we go. And you never clap for me, but I just feel better than you clap, so I'm going to feel better every week. Uh, last week, I kind of sounded like Froggy from Little Rascals. You may remember that, but uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's great to have you here. It's just us this week. Um, normally, we give a shout-out to Skagit. But today is their five-year anniversary, so they're having a, a unique celebration and, and service down there. They're not joining us. And normally we give a shout-out to Boca Raton. Their church is boarded up this morning as they're trying to weather this storm. You can be praying for them, and we'll let you know what we know um, as we know it. Uh, those online uh, watching the live stream, good to have you with us as always. And usually at this service, we have our, our most uh, senior saint, Helen Kristen, who is 104. And so good to have you watching with modern technology every single week. Helen, we love you so much. <clears throat> we just got done with the longest contiguous uh, series we've ever done here at Cornwall, 14 weeks in the book of Romans, digging into this incredible book, a lot of depth. And I thought as we came out of this 14-week marathon uh, over the summer, before we jumped into some new things this fall, I would take this week a kind of a standalone, maybe to cleanse the palate, to slow down, take a breath before we jump into something different. So today... I don't know if this is a sermon or not. I, I didn't think it was, but some people said it was. So you, you make that determination. I want to tell you some stories, give you some thoughts, uh, some insights. I will say this. I am hanging uh, some of those thoughts on verses out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because I think it's, when you go to church, it's a good idea to, to look at Scripture. I think that's important. So if you have your Bible or your tablet or your phone, you want to follow along. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And then anytime in, the, in, our, in my talk, if you get bored with the story, you think my insights are off, just read 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and you walk out of here blessed and having heard something from the Lord because it's a great chapter. Um, and so I, I just want to kind of just talk. So this one's a little different. If you're here for the first time, you're going, that was weird. Um, I'm weird. It just kind of <laughs> goes with the territory. So let me take you back uh, a few years ago, in 1987, actually, 1987. Um, actually, Helen was 74 uh, in those days, just a young, young 74. Uh, it was 30 years ago. In 1987, uh, Michael Jackson's Bad album came out. Not like it wasn't a bad one. It was called Bad. Um, and uh, Bon Jovi had Living on a Prayer. That was a big hit for them. And YouTube's Joshua Tree came out that year. That one did really well for them. So for those of you who are like, 1987, you don't know anything, but you were listening to music, that was that era. And for some of you, I know this was before you were even born. I get that. Um, there were some things that happened culturally in 87. Our world was introduced uh, to Spuds McKenzie. You remember the little dog Spuds? Uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Turtles on the Half Shell, Turtle Power. Some of you remember that whole deal. Uh, the Simpsons started in 87. There was a, it was a significant very negative event for Christianity in 87. That's when the Jim Baker PTL scandal came out and became public. It was just a, an embarrassment and a horrible thing for the kingdom of God. It was a year when uh, Ronald Reagan said, uh, you know, Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That was 1987. There were two other significant things that happened in 1987. One of them I have a picture of. I turned 24. Now, this is circa 1987, give or take. This is at Multnomah Falls before it was on fire. Had the acid wash jeans, which were way cool. And, um, and, and the Bo Jackson Nike cross trainers. Those were the coolest shoes ever, ever made, in my opinion. All right, so I turned 24. And that year, I moved to Whatcom County. I moved here to Bellingham to be a part of what was then called the Cornwall Park Church of God. And, uh, and so I, I started here. And, and I want to tell you a little bit of that story. On September 8th, 
1987, that was 30 years ago Friday, September 8th, it was a Tuesday that year. It was a Tuesday after, after Labor Day. It was a day very much like today, sunny, kind of fall in the air. And I had just moved to Bellingham, Washington to start this new chapter as a youth pastor of the Cornwall Park Church of God. Now, I'm just new to town, so I don't know anything about subdued excitement. I didn't know I was supposed to be subdued. I was filled with excitement. I was eager, I was enthusiastic because this was the start, the first morning of my first day at a new church, new chapter, new ministry. It was gonna be a great thing in, in this youth ministry here in Bellingham, Washington. And I got to work with a man that I highly respected and loved, a friend of mine named Ken Long. At the time, I lived about two miles from here on Northwest. And that morning as I was going in for my first day to start my new ministry here at Cornwall Church, filled with enthusiasm, I drove past Shuckson Middle School knowing that some of those kids, praying that some of those kids would be a part of our youth ministry. I was so excited as they were going into school and with all of my enthusiasm, forgetting that it was a school zone. And it was 25 mile an hour zone at that point. The city of Bellingham issued a welcoming committee to come and welcome me to Bellingham. <laughs> complete with flashing lights and sirens and pieces of paper and an invitation to meet one of the local judges later on in the month. And I knew this is going to be a good, good season in my life. That was the first day on my way to work for the first day at, at, at this church. I got a ticket 30 years ago last, last uh, Friday. And I just want to say before I go any further with my story, I am so grateful for this church and the 30 years that I got to be a part of this great community. I, I cannot tell you. The, over the years, the people that have served on the board of elders, the people that have been on our staff, that have come and go, people who have been a part of our congregation, the way that you have believed in me and taken risks with me and, and, and prayed for me and forgiven me and been patient with me and gracious to me, I cannot imagine, for more than half of my life being a part of this church, I cannot imagine what life would have been anywhere else but a part of Cornwall Church. And I just want to say so much as your pastor, thank you so much for being a part of my life and letting me be a part not only of this great church but vocationally even being paid to be a part of this great church for the last 30 years an amazing thing so a little no 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 i'm thanking you so all right so a little backdrop um this church many of you are not aware of this church started at a little sunday school in bell creek i think in 1906 so what is today cornwall church has been in walken county for 111 12 years so in, I think it was 83 or 84, you can check with some of these guys back here, they'll remember. This church took a risk on a young guy named Ken Long and asked him to come be their pastor. At the time, the Cornwall Park Church of God was running 80 or 90 people on an average weekend. And Pastor Ken came in with great enthusiasm, incredible biblical preaching, and a vision to make a difference in this world. And the church began to grow. And over the course of the next three or four years, the church more than doubled. And by the fall of 1987, the church was averaging 175 people every single weekend. And Pastor Ken was convinced that for the church to go to the next level, we needed to have a thriving student ministry. And, we wanted, and he wanted to have someone to come specifically to build that ministry. And he had someone in mind, a guy that he referred to as Bobby. His real name was Bob, his real name's Robert, but his name is Bob. It's me. Okay. So he convinced the church. Now, this was a huge stretch for this church. Because it had always been a relatively small church, and the thought of having two full-time paid positions was just like, this was a huge stretch. And yet people in faith stepped out and said, okay. And so they brought me uh, to this church. 
And um, that, was, that first day was on Tuesday, uh, September 8th. And they've been talking about this new youth ministry and this new youth pastor that's coming and telling everybody, bring your kids out. So on that Wednesday night, September 9th, that Wednesday night, first youth meeting, telling everybody, bring your kids out for the youth group. The new youth pastor will be here. I showed up there, and five guys were there. Dan Kristen, uh, who, is, who is Helen's uh, grandson, and um, Aaron Probst, whose mom was in the last service, uh, the Watts boys, Sean and Brent Watts, whose parents are here. I think Larry and Avalier are here. Um, are they? They're here somewhere, okay. And then Rick Norris, uh, whose family is still part of this church. And Rick Norris, whom Dorothy Kristen could not call him Rick Norris. She always called him Little Ricky Norris, bless his heart. That was his title. <laughs> now there's the boys. And then Little Ricky Norris, bless his heart. So, so there was a, these five guys. And that was, that was the start of the youth ministry. And what's interesting, because we started with five guys over the course of the next five years in the student ministry days for me here at this church, our student ministry was always heavily weighted guys to girls, two to one, even three to one at times, because it started with five guys and they brought their friends. Well, that weekend there were a couple other kids. I met a young man named Darren. Darren's here. Darren was a young skater kid that was at church here with his dad. And, and, and I had a Sunday school teacher that, that was given to me as well. His name was Ray Backman. Ray is in the back row here. Ray, thank you so much. Ray was our Sunday school teacher in the junior high department at that point. And we started this, this student ministry. I started this thing. And over the course of the next year, we started trying to, you know, build this thing. And 11 months later, we took our first youth trip to Mexico. We got a, we got a picture of that. This is Larry Watson, Milo, and, there's, and Larry's son, Brent. Darren was there, part of that. And uh, that's Dan. Uh, that's me back there hiding behind my dad. This, this van, this was before, before students got on planes and flew to San Diego and then drove. We took the Ford Econo line nonstop from Bellingham to Ensenada. Man, the way God ordained it. We're in this, in this Ford Econo line. The, the, the youth group called this, this van the Booger because it was green, this old Ford Econo line. And we went off, we went off to Mexico and over the course of the next years, we began to build this student ministry and had this thing called Nightlife. It was an outreach where, where kids were invited, uh, encouraged to invite their friends, and a lot of high energy and competition and games and, and uh, uh, loud music. And, uh, and I'd always give a talk about something in life and how God's word re, re, you know, was relevant to us. And that grew, I mean, over the years, grew to even 90 kids. And, uh, and then we had SALT, which was Students Aggressively Living the Truth. And it was our discipleship group. We had worship and deep Bible studies. And then we had Sunday school, because you had to have Sunday school back then. In fact, we got a Sunday school picture. This is from one of the years uh, at, in our Sunday school and, and doing all that. And so the student ministry was just growing and flourishing. It was an exciting season. Our church continued to grow. We, we had uh, entered into a season where we tried an experiment next door with the Boys and Girls Club where we would have a service where there wasn't a choir and there wasn't hymns and there wasn't, uh, you know, uh, the organ, but there was a band and there was drama and there was video. And we were trying some new things out on that. And the church continued to grow from about 175 uh, to about 300. And while things were growing, going up and to the right, there was also a very dark season for me personally. Because in 1990... I went into a very deep valley. It was a separation from my then wife that ended in a divorce. It was a very dark season for me. And while I had sung about God's amazing grace, and I had known scriptures about God's grace, and I had taught about grace, in those two years, I experienced grace from this church that I didn't even know existed. 
And it wasn't just for me, it was for my ex-wife as well. This church surrounded us, encouraged us, prayed for us, supported us, stood behind us, just fight, fighting for us. And over the season of those two years, man, I, I wasn't in a good place. And as I said, it ended up in a divorce, and I was broken. I mean, I was just brokenhearted. Something broke in me, and I wasn't healthy. And my, my world, my self-image, my ego was shattered. The, the woman I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with didn't want to be a part of me. And, and, and so I went into kind of, a, as John Mayer called, a quarter-life crisis. I was just trying to feel good about me. And I just you know, bought a motorcycle, and that was a lot of fun. Heavy into lifting weights just because it was like a little bit of the aggression, but I wanted to get bigger. I mean, my, my, my free weight bench max was 325 in those days. I mean, it was just all that. And, 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 and then I got, I got real competitive. I'm still youth pastor at this time. And one of the things we did frequently was we would play volleyball. And it got to the point where as I would cycle in to come play volleyball, multiple kids would say, you know what, I'm going to take a break now because I was coming in. I'm not kidding you. I'd come in and I'm like, you know, bam, take that, you seventh grade girl. You know, and, and, and I, I, I'm not kidding you. I just, I just I wanted to feel good. I was broken. I, I, was, I was empty. Physically, I was great. Emotionally, spiritually, relationally, I was on empty. In August of 92, I had agreed to speak at this youth camp in northern Indiana. I went there on fumes. I don't know how I even made it through. And following that, I went to see my friend Tony Schwartz. He was working at Willow Creek at the time. I spent some days with him. And then I had arranged with friends of my parents who owned a place at Cannon Beach to go away for a retreat. Because I was like, I don't even know. I don't even know if I should be in ministry. I don't know if I made a mistake in this whole thing. I don't know if I should stay here at Cornwall. I just don't know. I was, I was a broken, empty shell. And I went away for that four-day four retreat by myself with nothing but a guitar, a Bible, a journal. And I just immersed myself in times of prayer, of worship, meditation, of journaling, and Scripture, pouring in large large chunks of scripture, reading through the gospels. And about the second or third night of that, that, that solitude retreat, as I was reading through John chapter 8 specifically, I did not hear an audible voice, but I heard more clearly than I've ever heard in my life the whisper of Jesus. And the essence of what he said to me was, I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done with you. And it just broke this floodgate in me. I began to weep, and I just poured myself out and worship, and, and it was a turning point for me. It really was. And I came home from that thinking, okay, you know what? If, if Jesus says that, then I, I'm going to go with him. And, and this opening verse out of, out of 2 Corinthians 4, it says, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. That's what I came home with. It's by God's grace. It's because of his mercy He's the one that's called me. He's the one that's given me his stamp of endorsement. If he believes in me, then I'll go forward. And I came home with a renewed vision, a renewed passion, and some healing that had taken place, and a commitment to continue on in that, pro that, that, that uh, process of healing. And I came into Pastor Ken's office, and he, he'd walked with me. It had been a rough couple years. And I said, Ken, let me just tell you about what happened at Cannon Beach. I laid the whole thing out, and I said, I want to tell you, I'm ready to go forward. I'm excited. We'd worked together for five years now. I'm ready for this next season, this next chapter. Man, God is going to do some incredible things. And he listened to me. He says, boy, that is good to hear, Bob. He said, I need to tell you something. I'm resigning and going to Vero Beach, Florida. I said, no, you can't. 
I mean, I just came out of a valley. I'm just getting ready to partner with you, and we're going to go now. We're going to take territory. We're going to, you know. He says, no, I'm, I'm going. And as he shared that with the congregation that fall, there were people that were upset, people that were obviously sad. The people would come to me because I was the only other one on staff, and they'd say, I'm mad at Pastor Ken. I said, me too. Let's get a rope and lynch him. I mean, I was just very, I wasn't the best one to come talk to about it because I was ticked off myself. And as we got towards the end of that fall, he was going to leave in December of 92. He said, Bob, why don't you become the senior pastor? And I said, what? Are you kidding? No way. A few other people, he threw that out, and they were like, what? Are you kidding? No way. I mean, it was just agreed upon. And he said, would you, would you be willing to stay at the church through the transition until they get the new pastor? And I said, I will do that. And I, at the time, I was looking about, I had signed on to work with Ken. He was leaving I planned on leaving too. I was looking at some other student ministry options. I was looking at some non-ministry options. My plan was I was going to leave, but I would wait until they got the new guy. And then I was approached by the church, and they said, would you be willing to preach three Sundays out of the month? Not every Sunday, but three out of the month, and we'll find someone for that fourth one. And then they said, and we'll give you a little extra money. Suddenly I heard the voice of the Lord. I said, yes. So, so I did, I, but you get what you get with me. You know, I mean, it's like, here it is. I said, okay, so I did. So we were going through, and what I found in, the, in those months, that fall of 92 and early in 93, is I found my heart just so connected to, so loving, committed to this body that I wanted the best for them. I, I didn't want to be their senior pastor, but I wanted the best. And as the pulpit committee was doing interviews and going through resumes and candidates coming in, they would say, well, what do you think with this guy? And I was like, boy, I don't know. Don't, don't judge it on me because I'm planning on leaving anyway. I didn't tell them that, but that was my plan. And then in about, I think it was probably March or April, I had lunch uh, with two of the men from the, uh, the search committee, uh, Larry, Larry Watson and Chuck Hartman. We went to Goldie's. Any of you remember Goldie's, the pickle bar thing? So we were at Goldie's. And, uh, and they said, um, you know, we've been told from the beginning you have no desire to be the senior pastor of this church, so we haven't even approached you. But someone had asked, has Bob ever been asked to pray about it? And so we're wondering, would you, would you pray about this? I mean, what am I going to say? No. I'm, I'm the pastor. I'm not going to pray. You know, I, and I said, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I guess. Which was a big deal to even pray about considering being the senior pastor. I mean, it's just like, no. And it wasn't just a big deal for me. I mean, for this church to ask me to pray about it was a big deal for them. It's maybe a bigger deal for them. I, I said this was in like March or April of, of 93. I have a picture from March or April of 93. That's me, by the way. The blue lips are from those... Um, Whopper robin eggs that you get at Easter. Always love those things. You can make lipstick out of them. That, really, don't worry about me. It was, but this is who they're asking to pray about being their senior pastor. I'm 29 years old. I have zero experience as a senior pastor. Not gone to seminary. I'm not ordained. I've never even performed a funeral. And they're asking me to pray about being their senior pastor. Here's what I've got on my resume. I'm recently divorced. I do own a motorcycle, a snowboard, and a killer mullet. That's who you're asking. So good-looking resume on this one. So we all, the whole church, we began to pray, is this what this is going to be like? And no one, I wasn't convinced. In fact, I had a, a woman that came to me, set up an appointment. She sat down in my office and said, Bob, I don't think you are the one for this position. I said, I think I agree with you. 
She said, we need a young man with a young family because there's a lot of young families and to reach more young families. I said, I'm with you on that one. Let's just keep praying. And as I was praying about it, two things happened. One is that my heart just, just was gripped by this body of wonderful, dear believers. And I didn't hear no. I didn't hear yes, but I didn't hear no. And so I began to pray. I said, God, I, I, need, to, I need to know if you're in this. I mean, I need a, I mean, undoubtable sign. And kind of if you're familiar with the story of Gideon, I laid out a fleece. Now, our bylaws stated that in order for a new senior pastor to be approved and accepted, it required a 75% approval vote from the congregation. I knew that. And I thought, I don't want to be a pastor of a church where 25% of the people don't want me as a pastor, and on one Sunday morning, they all get up in the middle of my sermon in solidarity and protest and all walk out. I just don't want to do that. And so I I laid out a fleece. I said, God, not for my ego, but as as an undeniable sign from you, I'm asking, and I didn't share this with anyone in the church, I'm asking for a 95% approval rating. Not so that I'll feel good about myself, but so I will know that you're in this. The only person I told was my mom. We were coming up to the the time when the vote was going to happen. Mom says, how are you feeling? I said, well, Mom, I'm asking you to pray. I haven't shared this with anything. I'm asking God for a 95% approval vote. And she laughed at me. This is my mom. She laughed at me. I mean, she and Dad have been in ministry their whole life. She said, Bob, are you crazy? Let me tell you how this works. A guy will come into candidate. He'll preach his very best sermon, tell his funniest jokes, and his most gripping closing story. So they're all in tears. They love him, fall in love with him for a weekend. Anyone can look good for a weekend. And then they vote. And even that guy doesn't get a 95% vote. And then she said, and they know you. And I think her quote was, warts and all. They know, they've known you for five years. They've walked with you through the dark seasons. They know everything about you. They know about, about your preaching style. They know about your hair. They know about all of this stuff. They know you. And I said, I know. And she goes, what if it's 94%? I said, I don't know, Mom. Just pray. Just pray. And so the night of the vote came, and we were having an evening service in the downstairs in the basement of the church over there on Meridian. 181 voting members were there. And... Um, and I keep this, this little card in my Bible. I've ha- I have had this in my Bible for 24 and a half years now. And on the front of it, it um, is Altruth, where, is Altruth back there? Altruth, I believe this is your handwriting, isn't it? Um, it kind of has the, the, what's going to happen in the meeting. And Arnold, I think Arnold Fund must have been the chairman of our board, and so Altruth gave this to her. She was, Altruth was on the, on the public committee. Just talks about what's going to happen, you know, roll call, acceptance of names, hand out the ballots, name the tellers. The three tellers were Dan Christen, Ken Johnson, Gail Rasmussen. And then the results will be announced following the evening service. So we did that. We voted. And, we, and, and I just had this, this overwhelming peace. It was like, you know what? If God's in it, great. And if he's not, I don't want to have anything to do with it. At the end of the service, uh, I, I believe it was Arnold Fund. Um, came out and said, uh, we want to announce that the vote uh, was approved and it passed. And uh, most people were clapping, not everybody. Most people were clapping. But I'm like, yeah, but I have a fleece out there still. And I'm thinking, what, what do I do if, you know, if they show me later that it was 76% or 82 or 93? I mean, what do I? And I did not ask for this. I honestly did not. No one knew the 95% thing. And... Um, and Arnold gave me this little piece of paper. And on the back of it, it had the name of the tellers, but it also had these things. Eight no votes, 173 yes votes, 
100%. And I'm like, okay, God, you're in this, so let's go. And uh, yeah, and, and I have carried this in my Bible from that night until today. That verse in, in 2 Corinthians, it says, it's by the mercy of God that we have this ministry so that we do not lose hope. This reminds me, Bob, it's only by God's mercy that God has called you. And so away we went. I had no experience. I didn't know what I was doing. In fact, my, my number one goal that first year, my vision for the church, this is what it was. Don't kill the church. Don't kill the church. That was like my goal. It was like, man, I set the bar. Don't kill the church. Just at least keep it on life support, you know, whatever. And then, you know, things were going well. And then, honestly, and I'm going to have to, you know, I, I could talk to you for hours, but from 1994 to 2004, it was like riding on the back of a rocket around here. I mean, it was just what, ha- what was happening was, was crazy as people started coming and people got saved and we were adding services and staff members and all this. I remember having lunch with Steve Mason. He was the pastor at Christ the King and they were on an incredible growth trajectory at that same time. Having lunch with Steve and he said, Bob, here's how we do it. Every year I estimate how much I think we're going to grow this year. I staff for that, I program for that, I plan for that and we always get there. And I thought, that is so cool. Because here's how we operated. We got to the end of the year, looked back and said, how did we get here? That worked, that worked, that, worked, that wasn't so good, that happened. Man, we're behind, we got to hire someone. And we did. So we were always looking back, going, whoa, what's, what's going on? Steve was very intentional. You know? And so, so we were just going forward with this thing. And, and um, like I said, we were adding services and, I mean, building a, a new facility, uh, all of that stuff. Um, in fact, the, um, after, after we got started at the, the installation service, got a picture of this. This is like when they're um, uh, kind of installing me, like, like, like a refrigerator or something. As a, as a, as a past, Marvin Brunson was here. This is in the old sanctuary. Some of you may remember the One Heart at a Time campaign we were in right there and, and all this stuff. And, and so we're going forward, and, and, and it, was just, it was just crazy. I mean, it got to the point where, where we were having five services a weekend, and that Family Life Center was standing room only. People were parking in the neighbor's lawns. They were all angry and ticked off. It was a glorious season. It was just, it was just crazy, all this stuff that was happening. And, and then, you know, over the course of, the, of those years since then to, to now, I mean, we built the Family Life Center. That was a, a big deal. Um, my wife Doreen and I got married in 2000 at Christ the King because we didn't have a facility. A thousand of you came to the wedding. I mean, that was amazing. My biggest regret is we put on the invitation, no gifts. Yeah, if I would have known, <laughs> if I would have known a thousand of you were going to sign up, show up, I would have registered at Roger Jobs. We would have taken an offering. I mean, come on. I mean, it was an incredible time with that. And then we bought this land out here, and then we built this building and moved in here in 2002. And, and just uh, continuing on, we started uh, Cornwall at the Club, which is now Roosevelt Community Church. And we started Sky. I mean, it's been an amazing, amazing 30-year run. And I will say this, that over those 30 years, a lot of things have changed. But there are some things that have not changed. And there are some things that can never change. And I want to just talk about some of those things, some insights, kind of a perspective from 30 years at, at this church, some things about the core of this church, some things about the senior saints on whose shoulders we stand, some things that have always held true. Again, hanging them on some verses out of 2 Corinthians. It says this, 
We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This has always been the case, is that Jesus Christ is the only one who will ever be elevated or exalted around here. Jesus Christ is the one that we point people to. Jesus Christ is the one that we worship. Jesus Christ is the one that we follow. Jesus Christ is the one that we surrender and submit to. Jesus Christ is the one that we glorify. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus is the only one who will never let you down. He is the only one who will never leave you or forsake you. He is the one who shed his blood for you. He is the one who he will, you will spend all of eternity with. Jesus has always and will always and must always be front and center, number one, always, only, Jesus Christ. And that has been the case at this church. And I just want to tell you, if ever in the future, whoever your pastor may be years from now, whatever worship style we have years from now, whatever our programs, if Jesus Christ is not the front and center, we might as well close the doors and close down shop because we will miss the, miss the whole reason for our existence unless Jesus Christ is Lord around here. And that was the heart of the senior saints that were gripped by this for many, many years. And not only that, you know, when John the Baptist said, he must increase and, and I must decrease, Yes, there, there's that relationship with, with Jesus being exalted and I'm not. But there's something else with this as well because he says, we see ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Like it says in Philippians 2, that our identity, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who became a servant. Not just in washing his disciples' feet, but dying on a cross. And I want to tell you the core of this church and especially the senior saints have not only seen themselves as identi identified as servants, they have lived it and they have modeled it. A servant doesn't belong to himself. A servant doesn't have rights. A servant sacrifices. A servant is selfless. A servant works for other people. And that is what has been modeled and demonstrated for us for many, many decades. And what I find interesting here is, it's, is that he's saying, we are servants of Jesus, but yes, we're servants for you. Here's the truth. We serve Jesus by serving others. Maybe that's what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 25 when he says, when you've done to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it to me. You can talk to me all day long about how you serve Jesus, how you serve Jesus. You know how it's demonstrated? How you serve the body of Christ, how you serve those who are weak and poor, how you serve those who are marginalized, how you serve those who don't have a voice, how you serve this world. That will demonstrate how you serve Jesus. And the core of this church saw themselves as, as your servants for Jesus' sake. And the way that they would sacrifice. I mean, for years, this church barely made it through financially. And these, these senior saints that so dear believed in it, and they would give their tithes and above and beyond. You hear the stories where, where the church was not able to, didn't have enough money in the bank to even pay the bill. And Mary, uh, Mary Watts was our treasurer. And she and Milo, out of their own pocket, above and beyond their tithe, paid the electric bill so that the church doors could stay open. And, and many, many of you in this, in, this bill, in this room right now sacrificed for others. I mentioned the, the one heart at a time. We went through a season where we were always in a capital campaign, always raising funds. There was one heart at a time, a time to move, a time to build, all of these three years, three more years, three more years, and we just back to back to back, and people gave and sacrificed above their tithes. And why? So that you could sit in this room. This isn't for guilt. This is just let you know this is the core of this church. 
They had a dream that there would be a room like this where you could sit and together we could worship God and look into his word and learn. They said, we're servants for your sake. And it wasn't just the financial piece of sacrifice, especially that group of senior saints. What they would sacrifice, how selfless they would be, that they would willingly give up something that was very precious to them, very dear to them, very significant to them, dare I say, very sacred to them. The very way and style in which they connected most with their Creator and their Savior. Very traditional church. And the things that they would give up, one at a time, things taken away from them. You know, the hymns, the choir robes, the pulpit, the dress code. I mean, look at me, come on. You know, the, the pews, the Sunday night service, the potlucks. I mean, just one thing after another taken away. And why? Because they saw themselves as servants. And you know what's interesting? For that group of senior saints, for the mo most part, it never even crossed their mind that they would leave the church because the music wasn't what they liked. They couldn't even fathom the idea of leaving the church because the programs weren't the way they used to be. They weren't consumers. They were committed servants who believed in what God was doing. And we owe them an incredible debt of gratitude for what they were willing to give. And as I said, the church was growing and we were adding Saturday night services and Sunday services and uh, Tried to go earlier, and, and you know, the, the whole idea of a sunrise service works on Easter, but not every week. People weren't coming out to the 7:30 service. That kind of it just wasn't working. But we had this 11 o'clock traditional service, and it kept getting smaller. It met in the sanctuary and it got down under hundred people. And I was getting all this pressure from our staff, from people in the church. Bob, we need that 11 o'clock hour. We need another contemporary service. We need to shut down the traditional service. And I couldn't do it. I just couldn't pull the plug on this. And these people, they were the ones that believed in me. They were the ones that built that building with their own hands on Saturday afternoon for years in the late 60s. They were the ones that paid the light bill when there was not enough money. They had been worshiping this way for longer than I'd been alive. Who am I to take that away from them? And I struggled because I knew that for the church to go forward, we needed to do that, but I just couldn't do it. And then one Sunday afternoon in a church council meeting, Lyle Calkins spoke up. And he says, it's real obvious what we need to do around here. Lyle was traditional to the bone, loved the traditional service, went to it every week. He said, we need to close the traditional service and open another one in the Family Life Center at 11. To hear Lyle say that, to sacrifice everything that was dear and sacred to him and to his friends, to his church family for the sake of reaching others. It was Lyle Calkins who gave me the permission to say, let's do that. And when we canceled that, we did lose some people. But when we started that 11 o'clock service in the Family Life Center, that next week, we grew 100 people. And you know who was most excited about that? Lyle Calkins. That's the heart of this church. We're servants for your sake. And not only that, 
But it says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. These jars of clay, this picture of these disposable containers that are worthless, yet there's something so valuable in it. And the whole reason is to show that this all-surpassing power is from God. It's not from us. And this was another, another uh, truth that gripped us, was that God's power was the only thing that was going to make any kind of a lasting difference. And, and prayer was such a huge piece of those early days. In fact, when I became senior pastor, I basically there were three conditions, really. One, we still had one more trip to, to Mexico with the youth group I wanted to take in August. I wasn't planning on cutting my hair. And I asked the church to pray like they had never prayed before. And people did. Many of us read this book called Mighty Prevailing Prayer that just inspired us to hit our knees and to pray. Pastor Tom and Francis Purcell, they had been Pearl Harbor survivors, retired pastors. These, they were prayer warriors. And, and the church just prayed. I mean, we, we, we had this rule. It was called the blanket rule. We talked about it every, every month, the blanket rule. It means blanket everything in prayer. Cover everything in prayer. Before you do anything around here, pray first. Cover it all in prayer. Cover the chairs in prayer. Cover the instruments in prayer. Pray. Blanket everything in prayer. And we did. We would have 24-hour prayer vigils where we would ask people, sign up to come to the church and pray for one hour. And we would cover the whole deal. I mean, we'd do the sign-up sheets, three o'clock in the morning, four in the morning. People would show up at the church to pray. There, most of us carried around in our Bibles a little card that was referred to as the heaven's most wanted list. There was the names of people that didn't know Jesus, and we were committed to praying for them, praying that their eyes would be open, their hearts would be softened, their, their resistance would be receptivity. And we just prayed for them day after day, and we invited, and we shared, and we believed, and we saw people come to know the Lord. Ron Pye just shared today about how he was one of those guys that would come to church not wanting to have anything to do with God. He and his buddies would come. And I remember this young, handsome Hawaiian kid from Blaine. They would come on Saturday night, him and his buddies. And then they'd go to the bars and they'd smoke and drink and talk about what they heard in their service. And now he's our worship director. <laughs> you know what that means? Is that your next pastor is probably hung over right now. <laughs> just maybe. Yeah. But we just prayed. There was a season, I did a series on prayer at least twice a year. One time I was talking about prayer and I was preaching out of Matthew 6 where Jesus talks about the spiritual discipline of fasting, which we don't hear a lot about in America these days. And I preached on what is, what is the discipline of fasting. And at the end of that sermon, I just kind of made this comment of, wouldn't it be cool if there were 30 or 31 of us who would say, I'll fast one day a month and we could just cover this church in prayer and fasting. It was just a passing thought. After that service, people started coming up and said, put me on the fasting calendar. And we did. For years, we had a calendar. Every single day, there was someone praying and fasting for the ministries of this church. And, and a little side note, and this isn't to exalt them, just to let you know for your encouragement, that our elder board continues that tradition to this day, that one of our elders fasts every day of the week. There's a different elder every day. And they're covering this church in prayer and fasting. What if we just embrace that as a church? See, here's the truth I believe, and this is an indictment on me more than anybody else. Is that we aren't the praying church that we were in those days. And that needs to change. Because only when we realize that this all-surpassing power is from God. And that only He is the one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And only as we come to him earnestly praying and believing will we see him do 
incredible things like changing a life. Why? Why would these people sacrifice? Why would they be servants? Why would they pray? Well, this, all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. This has been the heart that God's grace that we spent all summer studying about in Romans, that it would reach more and more people, that we would never get this idea that it's us for and no more. We have our holy huddle. We've got our church. We've got our building. We've got our budgets. We're all good. It's not just about us. It's always been this desire that we would have the grace of God reach more and more people. When Pastor Ken came, he, he taught this thing he had, he had learned from Jerry Cook about, is the church a field or is it a force? A force that makes a difference in this world equipped and empowered to go and take the grace of God. And we did, back in those days, this evangelism explosion just to share the grace of Jesus with others. And people came to know, and this has always been the heart of this church. I'll tell you something else that happened in 1987. Pastor Ken was preaching a sermon. There was a man sitting on the back row of the sanctuary, never come to Cornwall Park Church of God before. And at the end of that sermon, he got up with a cane, very frail man, and he came walking down the middle aisle, and everyone could see this. Not an old man, just a frail man. And he came and he stopped at the front and he said, Pastor, would you pray for me? I'm sick. And so they gathered around him, they anointed him with oil, and they prayed for him, laid hands on him and prayed for him. He came back to church. His name was Stephen Cavanaugh. He came back to church, and the church just encouraged him and embraced him, gave him rides home, brought him to church. Stephen eventually gave his heart to the Lord. And when he felt comfortable enough, he shared that he had AIDS. In 1987, so if you remember, if you said you had AIDS, that was like saying you had the bubonic plague, that you were cursed of God. There was so much fear surrounding AIDS. There was so much uncertainty. There was so much lack of knowledge. And he said, I have AIDS. And this church embraced him and circled around him encouraged him, and when he could no longer come to church, people from this church went to his bedside and sat with him and took care of him. And we buried Stephan at Green Acres. And when we buried him, there's a realization that the grace of God had reached one more. One more that otherwise it wouldn't have. See, that's always been the heart of this church. There's something else I've carried in my Bible for many, many years. It's a letter that I received, and I'll read a portion of it. It says, Dear Bob, do you remember the young woman I mentioned to you? The one who had been married a couple of times and lately became a prostitute? Well, I'd given her a Bible to read and kept asking her to church, but she always said she wasn't ready. I've been working on her daughter, and finally last Sunday... She said she wanted to go to grandma's church. It's not her biological grandma. So her mom called to see if I would pick her daughter up. I told her I would pick them both up. Reluctantly, she came and enjoyed the service. She said, it seems like even if they knew about me, they wouldn't tell me to leave their church. But the real miracle happened this Sunday. I hadn't called her, but I walked into service, and there she was again all by herself. She's feeling a connection, and she knows she needs God, but is so afraid and feeling unworthy. I thank God for using our church to touch so many people who are the walking wounded. 
We don't see them as what they were, but what they can be with the Lord in their lives. The grace would reach more and more people. Let me read one I got last week. I come from a Jewish family. Our family did not practice the Jewish faith or care about it. I found Jesus in prison. I was a little intimidated when I got to Cornwall. That all went away as soon as I walked into the front door. I could feel the Holy Spirit in the presence of Jesus. I've missed you, is what Jesus put on my heart. Haven't been to church in a few years. Never been to church as amazing and full of love as Cornwall. It changed something inside me. I brought my two sons. One fought and did not want to go. When I picked him up from his grade five class, he didn't want to leave. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. You will see me again and again. This is the most amazing church I've ever been to. Thank you so much. The last service afterwards, I never met this man. He came up to me and he said, I wrote the email. He said, thank you so much. So we can never lose that. Some of you have seen uh, the video of Alta Ruth Calkins. I've mentioned her and her grumble list. And it basically goes through all the things that she loved and held dear that were taken away and how in her heart she wanted to grumble each time. But her response instead was, but Lord, if it helps us reach one more, then it's okay. That heart, that heart that says the grace of God has got to reach more. And all of it will overflow with thanksgiving to the glory of God. Those who are reached by the grace of God and truly grasp it, there is no other response except gratitude and thanks. Those of us who get to be a part of that process, there's nothing more than just thanking God. And all of heaven rejoices. And this Wednesday night in this parking lot, we get to continue to rejoice as people are taking the step of obedience and being baptized because they've been reached with the grace of God. And if you've never been baptized, go talk to Pastor Bill after service. He'll be right out in the commons. Join us Wednesday night as we celebrate that what has been going on in the church for 2,000 years and what's been going on at Cornwall Church for decades is continuing to happen. And our prayer is that it would never, ever stop. You see, our whole mission around here is to glorify God by altering the spiritual landscape one life at a time through Jesus. And 30 years from now, when I'm 84, there's four little strands held together to look like a ponytail. <laughs> 30 years from now, what stories will they tell about us? What will the next generation say about this group? What will they say about us? Well, whatever else they say, they better say this. Those people kept Jesus as a centerpiece, first and foremost, always only, it was about Jesus Christ. They better say this. Those people saw themselves as servants of others to glorify Jesus, and they served, and they sacrificed, and they were selfless, and they gave, and they believed in the power of prayer, and they prayed, and they fasted, and they were committed to seeing the grace of God reach more and more people. They were never satisfied with just who they were. 
And they were so grateful, giving all the glory to God. See, a lot of things have changed in 30 years. Those things can never change. Can never change here at Cornwall Church. And I just want to say, as we enter into my 31st year at this church, I look back with so much gratitude. And I'm just amazed, not only first and foremost at God's mercy and grace, but this church, your mercy and grace with me, come on. No guy deserves that. And you guys have lavished that on me for 30 years. And may we, as we move forward, may we continue to just keep our eyes focused on Jesus, keep pointing people to Jesus, keep humbling ourselves and following his example as servants, hitting our knees, praying and releasing the immeasurable power of God, believing that grace will reach another one and giving him all the glory. I think if we do that, then someday we'll all hear, well done, well done, and God gets the glory. You know, maybe it's because I'm a little bit nostalgic this weekend, but I've asked for for Krenda and Kathy to close us, and I'm going to invite you to stand. Close us in a great hymn of the church. Um, and part of it maybe is just, again, to say thanks to those senior saints who gave up so much. But that verse, it says, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. God's mercies have been new every single morning in my life, and he won't change. And he has always been faithful, and he always will be. And I want us to sing together that great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness.